Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Katie. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about dress codes for women and maybe a little bit for men, too, in our culture of modesty and professionalism, uh, because those things go hand in hand. And I've been thinking about this recently. I mean, there are constantly stories in the news about this, Um, but one Mm -hmm. that stuck out to me was... One that my friend Cindy Brandt, who's a writer, uh, she runs a blog called Unfundamentalist Parenting. She published the letter of a mother of a teenage girl who was going on a youth trip, a youth group trip to the beach or the pool or I don't know. And you probably remember these, but there's always swimsuit rules that girls in particular have mm-hmm. to abide by. And her her daughter was fine with abiding by the rules, which I think were something along the lines of one-piece bathing suits and shorts over the bathing suits. Uh, but the mom was really struggling with her daughter's decision. And should she should she go along with it or should she have a conversation with her daughter about how sexist this was. And so um, it just got me thinking about my experiences growing up. And I wanted to ask you about dress codes in your upbringing. You know, we were both in the South. So did you ever have experiences like this that this mom was describing? Oh, Lord. Yeah, there's one that really stands out for me. Um, I was about 10th or 11th grade. And I don't know, are you familiar with the power team? I have heard a little bit about it from you in the past, but I never was subjected to it. (laughs) So the power team came and did like a pep rally at my high school. And this was a problem in and of itself because they're a religious um, performing group. um, And this was in the late 90s. And they um, they they kind of perform these feats of strength. They throw tires and tear phone books and, and then they um, talk about how they do it with the power of Jesus. And I went to (laughs) a public high school. um, And so it's really questionable about why they were even there in the first place. But um, the thing that stands out to me the most is at the end, they kind of give their testimony and the power of of Jesus and faith um, can can transform your life. And um, the, I remember this man um, from the power team, kind of the main guy, going off on this tangent about how, um, you know, men need to be real men and women need to be real women. And so um, men, you need to, to act right and uh, behave like men. And young ladies, you need to, to dress like ladies because we all know what happens to, to girls who don't um, dress modestly. And I remember being really um, angry about that at 16, 17 years old and trying to talk to a teacher about it after. And she kind of brushed me off like maybe I'd heard it wrong and maybe there wasn't really anything to be upset about. And um, I didn't pursue it any further because I, I, you know, I just took her at her word and thought, well, maybe I heard it wrong. But over the years, I've realized, nope, I heard that right. <laughs> women, women need to dress a certain way or else we're asking for the, um, the consequences. And um, yeah, I think it's all part of a bigger, a bigger picture. Um, I don't know, did anything like that ever happen to you? 
Oh, yeah, all the time. Similar to what you're describing growing up in the purity culture of the late 90s, early 2000s in my church. Uh, we, especially women who were girls, really, girls who were up front uh, on stage at any kind of youth performance were really expected to adhere to very strict dress guidelines. And uh, similar to you, there was another, there was a girl who was dressed in some clothing that was maybe tighter than, than what the, the leaders were comfortable with. And they made, they made this girl go home and change before she could sing in front of this group. And um, she was crying because she had gained weight. She had just been off to college for the first year and she couldn't afford new clothes. And so it just made her feel terrible about herself and her situation. I'm sure she was already feeling a lot of self-loathing, but then to have someone in a, a religious authority figure tell you mm. you're not appropriately dressed and you need to go home, it just adds to that shame and stigma that women feel just by existing in this culture. Mm, that's terrible. Yeah, and as we were talking, this is kind of going to a different place, but I was just thinking about how our Western culture is so Islamophobic, and yet their standards for dress for women you know, are all about modesty. And yet we don't seem to uphold that as like virtuous <laughs> that women mm-hmm. wear the hijab or, you know, in general have more modest clothing when they're out in public. But we, we say, we call that oppressive, right? Even though yeah, their values are very similar around this. So I don't know, it just shows you the inconsistency and then it's not really about that. Yeah. I, yep. It's not really about that because what we see is that it's not just about, you know, we have these quote unquote modesty rules for how women should dress in order to um, ensure that boys don't have sexual impure thoughts about, about girls. So we have to dress a certain way to keep ourselves covered. But there's also, you know, a lot of um, implicit rules for what men are allowed to wear and um, boys are allowed to wear. And it might not be codified um, in a set of like written down rules the way it is for girls in school. But, um, you know, we don't our culture doesn't let boys wear dresses to school um, or wear pink. I mean, guys get a lot of pushback for for wearing things that are deemed a little too feminine. So I think you're right that there's something bigger going on here. It's not, um, it's not just about, you know, being modest. It's, it's really about upholding a a whole, um, patriarchal culture. And in a lot of ways, a white supremacist culture. Yeah. Both men and women are expected to play out their gender roles and how they dress and how Mm -hmm. they carry themselves in the world. It's like very, men are expected to practice masculinity in a very narrow way. Mm -hmm. I think you're, I think you're right. I remember a colleague of mine, um, from seminary, who's a Latino gay man said to me, women get all of the fun in dressing. Like they get to just, you all get to dress in all of these different ways. I mean, of course he also gets the problematic side, but I thought, yeah, there's a lot, there is a lot more, like color and freedom and what's acceptable for women to wear and and women get to um to wear masculine clothing and it's not the same I mean up to a degree right if it's fem if it's feminized yeah. masculine clothing 
uh, yeah. it's it's seen as like like the boyfriend jeans or whatever, right? Yeah. Like that's fine, mm-hmm. but there aren't girlfriend jeans for for men. Yeah, I think a really good example of that is the recent romper um, that's been marketed for men and the pushback that that is getting. Um, and it's really sad because I've I've read some really interesting articles by guys who are like, rompers are comfortable and they're easy to wear and you don't have to think about them and they're really cute. And here's me in a romper at this concert and kind of like, okay, everyone get over yourselves. Like this is this idea that that clothing has a gender, that pieces of fabric have a gender um, and that we can't, you know, we have to make fun of of men who would want to wear something that that our culture has deemed feminine is just really absurd when you kind of look at it that way. Yeah, and that starts so early with baby clothing. Yes. Um, uh-huh. It's actually been interesting because my husband is in his mid-40s, so at the time that he and his brother were born, there weren't ultrasounds, and so people didn't know the gender before, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. an interesting difference. Uh, but so his baby blankets have blue and pink on them because they mm-hmm. what they didn't know. And so um, not that that's you just wouldn't see that now because practically everyone figured like looks to see what the gender is. And if you don't, it's considered like, oh, you're you're being so um, I don't know. It's like you're withholding this information from the world if you don't tell everybody the gender of your kid before. Um yeah. But yeah, it's like all of that infant clothing is so there's very little gender neutral anything starting when kids yeah. are really young. Yeah, it's bizarre and the the need um you know I have I see this a lot um with babies um newborn girls putting giant bows on their heads just to make sure that everybody knows that this infant is a girl. And there's so many assumptions that we make about that, about that infant when we do that. And also just this idea that a bow is what is all that is, that's the signifying marker, right? Like the bow is the difference between the perceiving this infant as a boy or a girl. And um, it's kind of the same way with adult clothes. It's like this piece of fabric is the, the signifier that this person is ascribes to this set of gender rules or this set of gender rules and it's all Mm -hmm. made up at the end of the day it's all made up it's not inherent to who we are as human beings um to prefer one color over another um and and all women should like pink and all men should like blue and um it's just so it's such a strange this is just this whole concept is very strange to me dress codes are something that i have had struggled with my whole life yeah just the the performative part of gender um yeah is so is so interesting i remember that concept being taught to me for the first time or really explained to me for the first time that you know we don't um we don't ask to see people's genitals to know right. what their gender is. It's all about that outward expression for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some anatomical things, but, you know, there can be, like, shorter men and taller women. Like, there there aren't always those cues that we show externally. So it is all about, like, how we carry ourselves and our, our dress and do we have makeup on, do we have nail polish on. Um, 
and mm-hmm. we and we force people into one category or the other. There's not a lot of room. I think people who don't uh, conform strictly to the masculine or feminine identities are really ostracized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's like pick one. Pick one. Yeah. <laughs> one or the other a... makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. And it's so arbitrary. It's just such an arbitrary um, set of rules that we, we put on people. Um, you know, in a looking at dress codes again, I guess, as um, these – rules that women have to follow to be perceived as feminine or as serious or modest, and then rules that men need to follow in order to be perceived as powerful or um, be taken serious, seriously or as masculine. And then there's also a set of rules like in the professional workplace, this set of rules that people of all races have to follow in order to be perceived as professional or serious or smart or academic or educated. And those rules are all rooted in sort of this white masculine ideal, right? So it's, it's all very arbitrary. Yeah, agreed. And I just added that it's heterosexual too. Um, Mm -hmm. Heterosexual white male norm. Absolutely. Yeah. I've heard, uh, People of color in particular like being told that their hair isn't unprofessional if they're wearing it in braids or cornrows or right. or an afro or whatever. It's like, okay, well, our hair doesn't grow the same way as white people's hair. Right. So <laughs> how yeah, do you, the, I mean, and conforming it, mm-hmm. conforming it requires lots of time and money and chemicals and all kinds of things. So just... Yeah, looking at the racial aspect of it, too, is really important and interesting and sad to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredibly frustrating, I think, for everybody to have to fit into these um, these rules that, you know, a lot of times they just don't feel natural. They don't feel authentic to who we are. Um, and and if we break if we break outside of those norms, we are calling so much attention to ourselves we are really um, inviting all kinds of pushback and criticism and professional consequences, social consequences. Um, and it's just really unfortunate that that is that we can't just like get out of bed and wear what is interesting and fun and comfortable for us um, that we are really um, it's a big risk to do that sometimes. Yeah, well, we both work from home. I wonder how that those who have the opportunity to work from home, I wonder how that's shaping it. I mean, obviously, we still go out in public and things. But I know my wardrobe has really changed since I've Mm -hmm. started working from home, like seven years ago at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have that same wardrobe that I used to when I was in DC and going up on the hill and having to go to meetings. I mean, so much of my work is done like this, where at most, I have to be like, kind of from the chest up looking professional, but I can be wearing like <laughs> pants, no pants. You don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, this makes me think of, um, I think healthcare is a really cool industry for this because, um, you wear scrubs, everybody wears scrubs and uniform. your scrubs are often, yeah, it's a uniform and they're, they're shapeless and they're comfortable and they're usually you wear the color of the unit that you work on. So 
it's not uncommon to see men in pink or dark red um, scrub scrub suits because they work on the labor and delivery floor or whatever. And it's really, you know, I've never thought about it this way. I always preferred. So it's weird. Um, sometimes uh, the more support healthcare services still have to wear. Um, I, when I was at Vanderbilt, I the dietitians all had to wear heels and hose and like professional dress under a lab coat. And there were a couple like renegade dietitians who were like, no, I'm wearing scrubs. Everybody else on my team wears scrubs. I'm wearing scrubs. And it was sort of like they were really outwardly defying the rules for our department, but they had seniority and they, you know, had had good relationships with our um, director. And so it was kind of okay. But, but, those of us that were younger followed the rules to the letter and we were kind of jealous, you know, and I've worked in other hospitals where it wasn't like that, where I was allowed to wear scrubs and getting, getting dressed is awesome. You literally, I have five of the same thing in my closet. I pull it out. I don't worry about how, I mean, there's just, it takes so much effort out of getting ready for work every day and I just love it. And I've never really thought about scrubs as being this like great equalizer, <laughs> but it's it's rare that you see men and women wearing the exact same uniform. Usually even in other places where there's a uniform, there's a female version of the uniform and a male version of the uniform. And it's not even really like that with scrubs. It's just everybody looks kind of bad in them until Grey's Anatomy came out. And then there's like this brand of Grey's Anatomy scrubs that are like cut tighter in the oh, waist. God. Oh, yes. And then like cut lower. Mm-hmm. So it does. It creeps in even there, too. But um, but yeah, I think it's interesting how our professions really can can change the way we think about this stuff. Yeah. So one profession that I think um, really deals with this in a different way is probably female clergy. For sure. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm considering getting ordained. And I've been thinking about if I do that and I am invited to preach or do a service, like I'm planning to do a wedding for a friend in September and I've already been thinking about what I should wear. But thinking about clerical robes, um, or, you know, the ones that we wear for graduations mm. and things, they're so shapeless and almost seem like they're created to to disembody us as we stand up in the pulpit. And I don't know that I really mm. like that either. Like, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about the scrubs, too, because I imagine they were still designed based on men's bodies. And so, like, should there yes. be should there be different kinds of scrubs based on your body type, um, and not just male female, but like some people are like apple shaped and pear shaped, all that stuff. Uh, but and thinking about mm-hmm. clergy garb, you know, it's those like big black robes that just sort of hang down, and um, I I kind of don't like the look of that either, of just being sort of like a blob with a head, you know, on top. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am an I am a, a body too, and so uh, I I don't know that I would want to have that uniform of sort of the shapeless, uh, like big giant hot velvet robe thing. I, I think that I might want something that's like a little that's cut differently for my for my body. So I don't know. Uh, it's something that I've I've talked about with female clergy before, and I'll never forget this confrontation I had with a seminary professor who was older 
probably one of the earlier women to get ordained. She was probably in her 60s or 70s at the time. And she, like so many female clergy, had like really short hair. (laughs) And um, I wouldn't call her masculine, but like more uh, just homely, maybe. I'm being derogatory. But anyway, you know what I'm saying? Like an older clergy woman who's just like, I'm I'm just going to wear like the basic thing. And she was talking about dress in the pulpit and it was a a women's preaching class and she said something along the lines of like when when people look at me in the pulpit. Oh, I'd push back on her and she had said when people look at me in the pulpit, I don't want them to think about sex. I want them to think about God. And it was such a power move on her end to shut down the conversation with me. And I, I mean, so many responses come to mind when I think of that. I'm like, oh, okay, so you can't think about sex and God at the same time. Or, oh, if you look at my body, that means you're going to think about sex. It goes back to what we were talking about. You were saying at the very beginning, which is that women are charged with ensuring that men don't have sexual thoughts. And I think that that is just a load of crap. Yeah, that is a real load of crap. I'm glad you agree. I agree. Just in general, this whole topic is kind of a load of crap when you think about it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So on to more um, constructive conversations about things that we've been reading. So what have you been reading lately, Ashley? So I'm really excited about this one. Um, I just, this is a book I just started, um, but it's called Beaches, Blood, and Ballots, A Black Doctor's Civil Rights Struggle. And it's the uh, biography of Gilbert Mason, who was a prominent doctor on the uh, Mississippi coast where I live. And he was a uh, civil rights activist, and he didn't write his biography until much later in his life. But he was one of the, um, the first civil rights protesters on the Gulf Coast. And actually, have you heard of the Biloxi Beach Wade-ins? No. You know, it's it's really uh, sad, but not a lot of people have. And we didn't even grow up learning about it in school. This is the first thing that I um, have read about it. And so the, the Biloxi beaches, the beaches all along the Gulf Coast were um, segregated. And one of the earliest acts of civil disobedience of the civil rights era was actually a group of um, black Mississippians who went down to the beach. I mean, this is a beach that's close enough to my house. I can walk there from here. And um, they waded into the water and did a a civil protest. Um, So there was the first protest that they did. And then um, a few weeks later, they did it again. But that time, a bunch of white people came and actually beat and killed people. And oh so God. it was called Bloody Sunday. Um, there's a there's a plaque there now that commemorates the civil rights weighed in. And um, Gilbert Mason was um, a, a really like key figure in the Mississippi civil rights struggle. So I'm really excited to to dig into this book right now. I'm on the part about his life and childhood and how he. Um, how he developed his ideals and um, how he grew up. And uh, the next chapter is about like the actual segregation laws in Biloxi and the beach itself. And, um, and then 
gets into the weigh-ins and stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. And it's, so far, it's really good, and I highly recommend it. Wow, that image of people entering into the water. I mean, it's so biblical. It's It made me think of the spiritual weight in the water or thinking about, you know, the Israelites stepping into, <laughs> you know, the river, like the river being parted. Um, wow. But that huge sacrifice, that's amazing. I, and one of those things I didn't know about, so I want to learn more about that. Uh, so I've been reading a fiction book that I just finished. I've been reading more fiction this year. I think sometimes I have a hierarchy of what books I learn the most from, and I just assume I'm going to learn the most from nonfiction. But sometimes that really isn't true. I think so many deep truths come out of stories that people write. Mm-hmm, definitely. And why they write them. And I read Small Great Things by Jodi Picote, uh, who I hadn't read before. I know that she's a very popular author, um, but her books have just never really sounded that interesting to me personally. But this one, she was writing from the perspective, well, three perspectives. Um, but the main character is an African-American nurse at Yale New Haven Hospital uh, in the labor and delivery unit who um, is attending uh, a patient there who happens to be a white supremacist. And the family uh, insists that she not touch their child. And so um, that child ends up dying while she's in the room and it turns into this lawsuit. The family is suing this nurse for the loss of, of their son's life. So we're hearing from the, from the nurse and about her struggle. Um, she lives in a predominantly white neighborhood so that her child can go to better schools. But we're also seeing the perspective of the white supremacist husband uh, who loses his son and about his upbringing. But also there's a public attorney who is, is, defending the nurse who's a white woman. And I think that might be the most interesting perspective because she sees herself as not racist. And yet she comes to understand her own implicit bias and her just lack of understanding of the black experience in America and the relationship that she develops uh, with this nurse over time kind of helps her understand what her white fragility and white privilege looks like. It's a really, really excellent book. Uh, Jodi Picot is a white author And so she's definitely having to do a lot of work to try to speak in the voice. But I think that she does a pretty good job. And I know a lot of people who've used this as a good book club discussion, especially if you're in a predominantly white community. So I would highly recommend it. It's a really good and fast read, very suspenseful, um, and takes you in places you're not expecting, which is always good with a fiction book. Yeah, that sounds really good. I can't wait to check that one out. So I'm up this week for the kindreds of the moment, and I'm really excited to lift up um, a group of folks who are in Tennessee uh, called the Faith Matters Network. They're a a people of color-led collective that trains, connects, convenes, and amplifies marginalized people of faith to chart a new moral horizon, which I just love that mission statement. It's just so thoughtful and rich. Uh, but I've gotten to spend some time with their public theologian in residence, and their name's Robin Henderson Espinoza, who's self-described nomadic theologian, just constantly traveling and doing speaking and stuff, but has roots with Faith Matters Network. And through Robin, I've learned about these things they're doing called, I think it's called the People's Supper, and they're organizing and encouraging people to sit down and have a meal uh, with folks who have different perspectives and viewpoints on things, just to create cool. more... Um, 
more space for dialogue and, and thoughtful conversation with folks. So if that's something that any of you are interested in doing, you can learn more on their website, which is faithmattersnetwork.org. That sounds awesome. Yeah, they're a really great organization living out their values, both internally and externally, which is so amazing and sadly very rare in our community. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the end of today's conversation. Join us next week when we'll be talking about choice feminism and what does it mean to be a feminist. A very short conversation always. (laughs) Talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 